the turn of the century, in 1999, Mike Myers made a comedy about a British super spy that was, well, not exactly the brightest bulb in the pack. That's right, I'm talking about Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. Do you remember that one scene in the movie where Dr. Evil is on the Jerry Springer show along with a Nazi and a member of the KKK? In the scene, the Klansman, who's played by Muse Watson, calls Dr. Evil a freak, causing Dr. Evil to attack him. Yeah, well, that's 1990s comedy for you. Anyway, sitting next to the Klansman in that scene was his son, Bobby. Playing the character of Bobby was Scott Cooper. This small role of Bobby the Klansman's son was Scott's first in a full-length feature film. Fast forward exactly 10 years, and Scott Cooper had another first, this time when he switched from performing in front of the camera to directing behind it. Unlike his acting career, Scott's directing career started off almost exactly the opposite way. His directing debut was Crazy Heart, which went on to win two Oscars in 2010. One for original song, a song by Ryan Bingham and T-Bone Burnett called The Weary Kind, and the other Oscar went to Jeff Bridges for best performance by an actor in a leading role. Oh, and Scott also helped write the movie as he adapted it from the book of the same name by author Thomas Cobb. In 2015, Scott adapted another book to film. This time, it was a book by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Neill called Black Mass, Whitey Bulger, the FBI, and a Devil's Deal. Both the book and the film, also called Black Mass, made the real Whitey Bulger furious. While serving time in prison, his attorney said Johnny Depp might as well be playing the Mad Hatter because it's just a movie about Hollywood trying to capitalize on Whitey's name. Let's dive into the crime-riddled streets of Boston as we compare history with Hollywood's version of Black Mass. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is based on a true story. Before we begin this episode, it's time for our little game, Two Truths and a Lie. I'll share two facts that are true and one lie. Then at the end of the episode, we'll learn which is which. Okay, here they are. Number one, Whitey Bulger tipped off the FBI on the boss of the Winter Hill Gang, the gang that he then took over after the arrest. Number two, Whitey Bulger had a son who died of Reyes Syndrome, but it wasn't after 1975 like the movie implies. Number three, Everyone in the Winter Hill Gang followed Whitey Bulger because they were afraid of him. All of the answers are scattered throughout the episode, or you can stay on to the end of the show to find out exactly what the answers are. While I have you here, don't forget, you can get show transcripts, find all of the links from each episode, sign up for the official newsletter, and plenty more over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Once again, that's based on a true story podcast.com. Thanks again for listening. And now, on with the show. Our story begins in the historic Dorchester neighborhood. That's an area spanning about six miles that used to be its own town when it was founded in 1630. But as Boston started to grow, it absorbed many of the surrounding towns, and one of those was Dorchester, which officially became a part of Boston in 1870. Dorchester is located on the south side of Boston, right along the Dorchester Bay, which is the smallest of the three bays that make up the southern part of the Boston Harbor. 
It was here in Dorchester that James Bulger was born on September 3, 1929, as one of six children. Growing up, James had a shock of platinum blonde hair that earned him the nickname Whitey. He hated this nickname. So any of his friends or simply acquaintances who didn't want to get on his bad side called him Jimmy. After his father, James Sr., lost an arm in an industrial accident, he was a union laborer and longshoreman, the Bulger family dipped into poverty. We don't know if that's the reason why, but poverty and crime tend to go hand in hand, so it might make sense that James Jr., who had joined a street gang in Boston, was arrested for stealing in 1943 at only 14 years of age. That might have been his first time being arrested, but it was hardly his last. After this first arrest, he racked up other charges for assault, forgery, and even armed robbery. Finally, he was sentenced to a juvenile detention center. And that's where Jimmy spent most of World War II as a teenager. In April of 1948, he joined the U.S. Air Force where, yet again, he got into trouble. He ended up serving time in a military jail for going AWOL as well as assault charges. Jimmy was in the Air Force for about four years, and despite all of his charges that he racked up while he was there, he still received an honorable discharge in 1952. Amazingly, he wasted no time in returning to a life of crime. For four years, Jimmy started to earn a name for himself. Or more accurately, Whitey Bulger started to earn a name for himself. Remember, only his friends called him Jimmy. And he was quickly making plenty of enemies. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. In 1956, Whitey Bulger was arrested yet again. This time, it was for probably one of Whitey's biggest crimes yet, a full-fledged bank robbery. Interestingly, this was also the first time Whitey gave information to the FBI. His girlfriend was a woman named Jackie McAuliffe, and although Jackie wasn't actually one of the three people who robbed the Industrial National Bank in Pawtucket, Rhode Island in May of 1955, she was close enough to have been involved. That was the first in a string of bank robberies that Whitey pulled off with a few accomplices. That came to an end in 1956 when Whitey caught wind that one of his accomplices, a man named Carl Smith, was going to turn him into the FBI. So instead, Whitey did it first. 
He told the FBI who helped him with the robberies, and he convinced Jackie to do the same. In exchange, the FBI cut a deal to not press charges against Jackie, and they didn't. Whitey Bulger was sentenced to 20 years in prison while Jackie went free. His first term was at the Atlanta Penitentiary. It was here that, according to Whitey, he had been drafted into the MK Ultra program. If you're not familiar with what that is, that's the CIA's top secret mind control program. According to Whitey, he and 18 other inmates volunteered to take a range of drugs, including LSD, in exchange for a reduced sentence. Later, Whitey would say the drugs drove him to insanity. We don't know if this was the reason why, but in 1959, the guards called on to a plot to escape. So they transferred Whitey from Atlanta to Alcatraz, just outside of San Francisco. He officially arrived at Alcatraz on November 2nd, 1959, and stayed there until November of 1962 when he was transferred to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary in Kansas. His final transfer was a year later in 1963 when he was sent to the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. Then, in 1965, Whitey was granted parole on his third petition. He had only served nine years, less than half of his sentence. Heading back to Boston, Whitey again wasted no time going back to a life of crime. As soon as he returned to Dorchester, he joined as the top lieutenant of Howie Winter's gang out of Somerville, Massachusetts. That's on the north side of Boston, about 10 miles from Dorchester. It was a gang referred to by the local newspapers as the Winter Hill Gang, although it wasn't named after the gang's boss, Howie Winter. Although technically, Howie was the second boss of the gang, he took over in 1965 when the original boss, James Buddy McLean, was killed in an area of Somerville called Winter Hill, and that's why the local newspapers called them the Winter Hill Gang. Around this time, another member of the gang called Stephen Flemmy informed on some members of the New England Mafia to an FBI agent named Paul Rico. Paul Rico is the same FBI agent who arrested Whitey Bulger in 1956 after the bank robbery. Four years later, Paul Rico returned the favor to Stephen Flemmy and tipped him off of an indictment that was coming for Stephen's involvement in the murder of Joe Barboza's attorney, a man by the name of John Fitzgerald. Joe's nickname was The Animal, and he was probably one of the most feared hitmen in the 1960s as he murdered at least 26 people for the Patriarca crime family. Of course, that number has never been confirmed. To take out Joe's attorney, John, Stephen had used a car bomb with the help of a man named Frank Salimi. But of course, don't all mobsters have nicknames? Frank was Cadillac. Both Frank and Stephen fled Boston with Frank heading to New York City while Stephen went to Montreal. Meanwhile, in 1970, William Bulger, Whitey's younger brother, was elected to the state Senate. Two years after this, an FBI agent named John Connolly recognized Frank Cadillac Salimi in New York City. He was arrested, and it was because of this arrest that John earned a transfer to Boston, his hometown. Two years later still, 1974, Stephen Flemmy returned to Boston when some of the witnesses mysteriously recanted their accounts. No witnesses, no indictment. Upon returning to Boston, Stephen joined up with Howie Winter's gang and met Whitey. After that rather in-depth timeline, we're finally to 1975, and that's when the movie Black Mass begins. 
Well, technically, it starts after that, as in the first scene, we see Kevin Weeks, who's played by Jesse Plemons in the film, talking to an FBI agent named Eric Olson, who's played by Lonnie Farmer. We get the sense that Kevin is informing on Whitey. That's true. And based on what we know of the timeline, it was in 1999 when Kevin Weeks ended up cooperating with the law. He had been arrested on his own charges and helped give information on Whitey in exchange for a reducing of his own charges. And with that, in the movie, we're whisked back to 1975. We first meet Whitey Bulger, who's played by Johnny Depp, as he's watching John Martirano licking his fingers and then putting them in a bowl of nuts. In the movie, John Martirano was played by W. Earl Brown. This particular scene is one that the real Kevin Weeks later called out as being untrue. Not just untrue, but completely and utterly untrue. According to Kevin, who saw Black Mass on opening night, if that incident with the bowl of nuts really happened, it'd be a really short movie. He explained this in an interview with the online publication Daily Beast and explained John Martirano never went to the Triple O's bar, so obviously that couldn't have happened. And even if it did, John, or Johnny as Kevin calls him, was even more vicious than Whitey. You see, Johnny's nickname was the Basin Street Butcher. If Whitey would have made fun of him, Johnny would have shot him on the spot. Wouldn't have been much of a movie with the main character dying in the first few minutes, would it? Oh, and another detail that Kevin made sure to point out was the way Whitey talked down to John. According to Kevin, Whitey never swore at them. He made a special point to say that for the entire time Kevin had worked with Whitey, which was from 1976 to 1999, Whitey never swore in the way that's depicted in the film. Back in the movie, the next big scene is when Kevin earns his way into the Winter Hill Gang. He and Whitey drive a man into the middle of nowhere and start beating him senseless. In the movie, as Kevin beats him up, Whitey says their victim's name. It's Joey Angelo. The movie says this in such a way that it seems expected that you know who this is, but if you don't, let's take a moment to find out. The Angiolo brothers, as they're called, were four brothers that were the largest Italian-American crime family in the Boston area. The guy depicted in the movie, Joey, wasn't one of the original brothers, but rather was the nephew of Gennaro, or Jerry as he was called. Again, this is a scene that the real Kevin Weeks took issue with. He said this never happened. But he went even further, explaining that if it had happened, that would have sparked a war between the Angiolo crime family and the Winter Hill gang. That in and of itself, according to Kevin, would have caused the street of Boston to run red with blood. So if that didn't happen, where did that scene come from? Well, Kevin explained that too. He said the guy that he beat up was a man named Paul Giamo, who had slapped Whitey's niece. So Whitey and Kevin drove him out to M Street Park, which is just along the coast of Dorchester Bay in South Boston. But they didn't leave him lying there like the movie shows. Instead, after blighting him up, they dropped off his body by his friend's place so they could see. Much later, according to Kevin, they realized that they had beat up the wrong person. It wasn't Paul Giamo who slapped Whitey's niece. Oops. After this, in the movie, we see John Connolly, who's played by Joel Egerton, come home. That is, he's been reassigned to Boston. This is a little off from the actual timeline. As we learned earlier, John Connolly earned his transfer back to Boston in 1972. And since the movie shows the flashback starting in 1975, the timeline is a little off. And that's not the only time that the movie's timeline is off. But we'll get to that later. 
However, the, the movie shows John Connolly making a deal with Whitey Bulger. And it's an alliance that John and Whitey make between themselves, not necessarily between the gang and the FBI. But John would provide Whitey with information from the FBI's side, and Whitey would give John the information that he needed to take down the Angiolos family. While we don't know the details of how the cooperation took place, what we do know is that John Connolly and Whitey Bulger did end up cooperating. This arrangement was mutually beneficial because it helped John grow his career in the FBI, while at the same time it helped clear the streets from Whitey's competition, the Angiolo family. But according to Whitey's right-hand man, Kevin Weeks, that's not exactly how it happened. Kevin explained that John was considered just as much a criminal as anyone else on the payroll. Every time they made a big score, some of the money was set aside for paying all of their law enforcement contacts, John Connolly included. One of the next scenes in the film gives a peek into Whitey's personal life when we see his girlfriend, Lindsay Sear, and their son, Douglas. In the movie, Lindsay is portrayed by Dakota Johnson, while Douglas is played by Luke Ryan. Over the dinner table, Douglas explains to his father, Whitey Bulger, that he got in trouble at school for hitting someone. To which Whitey calmly explains that it's not about whether or not you should hit someone, but it's about making sure that no one is looking when you do it. If no one is looking, it didn't happen. This portrayal in the film is yet another thing Kevin Weeks says is completely fictional. In his interview with the Daily Beast after seeing the movie, Kevin explained that's not how Whitey was with kids. In truth, according to Kevin, Whitey's character around kids, his own included, was more similar to what you'd think of a stereotypical mobster would be with kids, that is, very cordial and friendly. Kevin explained that Whitey was the godfather to one of his sons, and he remembered nothing like the push towards violence as portrayed in the film. Instead, when Whitey talked to kids, it was mostly chatting about how things are going, like baseball, you know, normal conversations. According to Kevin, business never made its way back to the house. One of the turning points in the movie is when Whitey's son, Douglas, is in the hospital with Reyes syndrome. This is partially true. What's true is that Douglas Sear, the son of Whitey, Bulger, and Lindsay Sear, did get sick seemingly all of a sudden. Born in 1967, he fell sick with a severe reaction to aspirin and died of Reyes syndrome in 1973 at only six years of age. According to Lindsay, after Douglas passed, Whitey became even colder and more distant. He changed. But if you'll notice something with the dates there, you'll notice that the movie has changed the timeline rather significantly. Douglas passed away in 1973, but at the beginning of the movie, it flashes back to 1975. While the movie makes it seem like Douglas's death was a turning point for Whitey in the middle of the film, that's simply not true. That is to say, it certainly might have been a turning point for Whitey, as it would be for any father to lose their son at only six years of age. But this happened before the timeline of the movie. So the filmmakers fudged the timeline a little bit here to make Douglas's death seem like the reasoning for Whitey's increasingly violent behavior. Back in the movie, the timeline skips forward to 1981. Now before we jump with the movie, let's cover a few of the important things that happened in those six years. In 1977, John Morris, who's portrayed by David Harbour in the film, took on the task of overseeing many of the agents in Boston. One of those was John Connolly. The next year, 1978, Whitey's brother, William, who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the film, 
became the president of the state Senate. Not to get ahead of ourselves here, but William Bulger would serve as the president of the state Senate longer than anyone else in history. Probably the most important event in this span that skipped over by the movie happened in 1979. It's one of those things that we know just enough about to get a picture of what happened, but we don't know enough of the details to know if the picture that we're getting is correct or not. At this point, Whitey Bulger was still the lieutenant in the Winter Hill Gang. That's the same position he'd been in since he returned to Boston 14 years earlier. Regardless of whether or not John Connolly at the FBI was crooked at this time, we know Whitey was feeding him information at the FBI. Some of that came when Whitey passed on information he and Stevie Flemmy had gathered on his own boss, Howie Winter. We don't know exactly what the information was, but it was because of this information that the FBI was able to grab quite a few members of the Winter Hill Gang, including Howie Winter. So, in 1979, Howie Winter was one of the 21 gang members who were arrested on charges of money laundering, income tax evasion, and horse race fixing. That's the official line, at least. I'm sure there's plenty else that the FBI was trying to get them on. Those are just the charges that they could prove. Of the 21 who were charged, thanks to John Connolly and John Morris, both Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmy were the only two left out of the indictment. John and John managed to do this because both Whitey and Stevie were informants for the FBI. With Howie Winter locked away, the title of boss was vacant for the Winter Hill Gang, and who should step into this new role than one of Howie Winter's old, trusted lieutenants? And so it was in 1979 that James Whitey Bulger took over as only the third boss of the Winter Hill Gang since its inception in 1950. Back in the movie now, we're in the year 1981, and Whitey gives John Connolly some information on a meeting with the Angiolos. This is something that Joel Edgerton's version of John Connolly delightfully gives Kevin Bacon's version of FBI agent Charles McGuire. And this is true. Well, like most of the details, we don't really know if it exactly happened that the way that we see in the movie, but we do know that both Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmy helped the FBI with planting a bug in the Boston Mafia's headquarters, as the Mafia run by the Angiolo brothers, or more specifically at the time, Gennaro or Jerry Angiolo. Another moment in the film comes with a cold-blooded murder when W. Earl Brown's version of John Martirano walks up to Roger Wheeler, who's played by David DeBeck in the film, and guns him down in broad daylight. This, too, is true. It happened in May of 1981, and Roger Wheeler was the owner of World High Lie. Now, in the movie, they mention High Lie quite a bit, but there's only a brief mention of exactly what that is. I had to look it up afterward to understand how this fit into the story. Just to clarify, High Lie is a game sort of like racquetball. It's more common in Latin American countries or in the Philippines, but globally its popularity has diminished quite a bit in the past few decades. All of this fits into the story, not because of the sport itself, but because Roger Wheeler owned a company called World High Lie. As you can probably guess from the name, World High Lie is sort of like a fitness club, or it was sort of like a fitness club, but it was primarily focused on the sport of High Lie. Anyway, to understand how this fits into the story, we have to go back in time real quickly. In 1974, World High hired a man by the name of John Callahan as its president. In the movie, John Callahan is played by Bill Camp. 
One of John's first acts as president of the company was to hire a man named Paul Rico to be vice president and chief of security. Do you remember that name? Paul was the FBI agent who had arrested Whitey Bulger some years ago. At this point, though, Paul had retired from the FBI. Two years later, John Callahan left World High Lie because it became public that he had mob connections. No doubt the company knew about this before, but at this point they hurt the company's chance at a licensing deal, so they essentially forced him to resign. The next year, a businessman from Tulsa, Oklahoma, decided to buy World High Lie. That businessman was Roger Wheeler. Oh, and as a quick side note, two of the people who placed competing bids to buy the company mysteriously backed out. Was there pressure by the mob allowing Roger to get the company? That's a detail we don't know. What we do know is World High Lie was a front that the Winter Hill Gang used to skim money. In the movie, the lead up to this cold-blooded murder of Roger Wheeler came by way of a meeting in Miami. It's here that, according to the movie, Whitey, Stevie, Kevin Weeks, and Johnny, that's the Basin Street butcher, John Martirano, all meet up to discuss the hit on Roger Wheeler. The film shows these men talking to John Callahan, the former president of World High Lie. It's John who hands Whitey a bag of money to pay for the hit. Whitey doesn't take it, but instead hands it to Brian Halloran, who's played by Peter Sarsgaard. While we'll ne never really know the exact words that are used, according to Kevin Weeks, the real discussion was nothing like what we see in the movie. Instead, Kevin explained the real meeting took place in a hotel by LaGuardia Airport in New York City, and John Callahan wasn't there. Instead, according to Kevin, it was Johnny Martirano, Stevie Flamey, and Whitey Bulger who met. The discussion wasn't around killing just Roger Wheeler, but rather about taking out both John Callahan and Roger Wheeler. Kevin Weeks, according to the man himself, was never there. He insists he only found out about Roger Wheeler's murder after John Callahan was murdered. So we can deduce that he only knew about the meeting because it was discussed later by those who were there. Or you could assume that Kevin's not telling the truth, but seeing as we have no one else's word to take for it, we really don't have anything else to compare it to. What we do know is, just like the movie shows, Roger Wheeler was gunned down in broad daylight outside a country club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His death involved the Tulsa police, which received a tip from an informant two months after the shooting in July that the Winter Hill gang was involved. And again, although we don't know the exact details surrounding it, John Callahan was murdered as well. Most believe this happened in July of 1982, a couple months after Roger Wheeler was murdered, but it wasn't until August of 1982 that John Callahan's decomposing body was found stuffed into a trunk of a Cadillac in the airport parking garage in Miami. He'd been shot multiple times in the head, and there was a dime carefully placed on his chest. The Miami detectives on the case came to the conclusion that John Callahan was murdered at the World High Lies front on, that's what you call a building where High Lies played, and then taken to the airport. Roger Wheeler and John Callahan were murdered so they wouldn't talk to investigators about the money the Winter Hill gang was skimming off of the World High Lie company. In the movie, everything starts to come crashing down for Whitey Bulger when two FBI agents start looking closer at John Connolly. It's been a little bit since we talked about this John, but he's the FBI agent who was on Whitey's payroll. 
The movie shows the two FBI agents behind the uncovering as being Kevin Bacon's character, Charles McGuire, and Corey Stoll's character, Fred Wyshack. In the movie, they get a break when John Morris, that's David Harbour's character, ended up spilling the beans on Whitey and John Connolly's connection. Before we dig into the truth here, I should point out that using the term truth is really shaky ground. The truth is, we simply don't know. Like many of the facts in this situation, we're talking about either an investigation from the FBI or another government entity and organized crime. So either the facts are hidden, covered up, or maybe they aren't even facts at all. Really, we, we just don't know. But let's start with some of the things that we do know for sure. Everyone at the FBI knew John Connolly was working with Whitey Bulger and Stevie Fleming. They assumed, though, that Whitey and Stevie were informants. The movie is correct in showing that the two FBI agents who started to dig into what was going on were Fred Wyshack, who's played by Corey Stoll, and Charles McGuire, who we learned earlier is played by Kevin Bacon. As they dug deeper into things, agents Wyshack and McGuire started to realize the connection between John Connolly, Whitey, and Stevie were more than just a typical informant connection. But where it starts to get cloudy is we don't really know who else was involved, or was anyone else involved. Were agents Wyshack and McGuire really good FBI agents who caught on to the fact that something was stinky with John Connolly and Whitey Bulger? Or were they just part of a cover-up that threw former Agent Connolly and Whitey Bulger under the bus to save their own behinds? You can get super into the conspiracy side of this, so I won't really dig into the what might have been scenarios here. It's worth pointing out though that in his interview with the Daily Beast about the film, the real Kevin Weeks mentioned an FBI agent who gave the Winter Hill Gang about 37 pounds of C4 so they could pull off a hit against a Boston reporter. He also mentioned how a man by the name of Jeremiah O'Sullivan, who's played by Lewis Wheeler in the movie, gave information to John Connolly to give to Whitey. Jeremiah was another member of law enforcement, but he wasn't FBI. Jeremiah O'Sullivan was the head of the New England Organized Crime Strike Force that was credited with helping to bring down the Winter Hill Gang as well as Jerry Anguillo. Did they do the latter with help from Whitey? Again, you can get super into the conspiracy theory mindset here, but no one can deny it's really fascinating. The final shot in the movie is one of an elderly Whitey Bulger. He's walking into a parking garage when the FBI jump out and arrest him. This is true. Well, like many of the scenes in the movie, we don't know if it went down exactly like what we see in the movie, but Whitey Bulger did get away with his crimes for a really long time. Realizing that the end of his reign was near, Whitey got his final tip-off from John Connolly that indictments were sealed and delivered from the Department of Justice. On December 23rd, 1994, Whitey Bulger simply disappeared along with his common-law wife, Teresa Stanley. The movie doesn't show any of this, and law enforcement certainly didn't know at the time, but after Whitey Bulger disappeared, he went to Selden, New York. Selden is a small town on Long Island, just to the east of New York City. He only stayed there for a few days, then he headed to New Orleans just before New Year's Day in 1995. Soon after this, he almost returned to Boston, but on January 5th, 1995, Stephen Flemmy was arrested by the DEA. Stephen's brother, Michael, was a detective for the Boston Police Department, and he mentioned the arrest to Kevin Weeks, who, in turn, tipped off Whitey. After Whitey went into hiding, Kevin Weeks took over as the boss 
of the Winter Hill Gang. So it was a member of the Boston Police Department that essentially tipped it off to Whitey. They'd only been on the run for a few weeks when Whitey's common-law wife, Teresa, decided she wanted to go back to be with her children. We don't really know exactly how much time spanned between these events, but Whitey would later admit that he took Teresa to Florida first. There, he picked up a box with uh, some documents that he had stored in a safe deposit box for a new identity. Whitey Bulger was now Tom Baxter. Then, the couple left Florida and went back to Boston where Whitey said goodbye to Teresa. While she went back to live in her hometown so she could be close to her children, Whitey went back to his own hometown of Dorchester where he met up with Kevin Weeks. Kevin brought with him Catherine Gregg, Whitey's longtime girlfriend. So yeah, Whitey dropped off his common-law wife and then picked up his girlfriend. Together, Whitey and Catherine went on the run. Four years after he disappeared, Whitey Bulger made his way to the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. He stayed on that list for the next 12 years. In that time, the FBI fielded a lot of reports about Whitey around the world. He was in London. Then he was in Uruguay. No, no, he's in Sicily. Now he's in Germany. The tip that paid off came in on June 21st, 2011. The Boston Globe would later report that the tip came from a former Miss Universe contestant from Iceland named Anna Bjorn, who said she lived in the same neighborhood as Whitey. The next day, on June 22nd, 2011, and at the age of 81 years old, James Whitey Bulger and his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, were arrested at their apartment in Santa Monica, California. The movie shows Whitey's arrest coming in a parking garage, but the official terminology used by the reports from the task force who captured him was that they orchestrated a ruse to get him to come out of the apartment. When he did, they arrested him without incident. Then, they went inside the apartment and arrested Catherine. On June 12, 2013, Whitey Bulger went on trial as he faced 32 counts of racketeering under RICO, or the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act of 1970. That's the act that's used to prosecute organized crime. Included in the charges were conspiracy to commit extortion, committing extortion, shoplifting, narcotics distribution, conspiracy to commit money laundering, conspiracy to commit murder, and 19 counts of murder. The trial could be really an episode in and of itself as it spanned two months and had a total of 72 people coming forward as witnesses. It came to a close on August 12th when Whitey was convicted of 31 of those 32 counts. Included in that were the convictions of 11 murders. Alphabetically, they were Arthur Barrett, John Callahan, Richard Castucci, Edward Connors, Michael Donahue, Brian Halloran, Deborah Hussey, Thomas King, Paul McGonagall, John McIntyre, and last but certainly not least, Roger Wheeler. Whitey Bulger was sentenced on November 14, 2013. He received two life terms in prison with an additional five years tacked on top. In addition, he was forced to pay $44.7 million in restitution. Oh, and the law enforcement in both Florida and Oklahoma have indicted Whitey for the murders of John Callahan in Florida and Roger Wheeler in Oklahoma. So if, by some chance, he survives his multiple life sentences, he would then be charged by those states. 
That's not likely though, since when he was convicted, Whitey Bulger was 84 years old. On June 25th, 2016, many of the possessions found in the Santa Monica apartment were auctioned off in an attempt to pay the restitution. It only raised about $109,000. As of this recording, Whitey Bulger is still alive and at the age of 87 is currently serving his life sentence in the United States Penitentiary Coleman II in Sumterville, Florida. As you can probably guess, there's so much more to this story. We didn't even get to talk about what happened to William Bulger's political career, what happened to players like Kevin Weeks, and why he's been willing to open up about a lot of what's happened, not even to mention the countless conspiracies and theories around it all. One thing's for sure, Whitey Bulger was an incredibly vicious man who was both directly and indirectly responsible for the murder of many people. Exactly how many? We may not ever know. And while Kevin Weeks certainly isn't innocent by any means, his testimony helped bring Whitey to justice and find many of the bodies of his victims. According to Kevin, it's the FBI who enabled Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmy to do the things they did. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. There's so much to dig into with this story. To start with, I would highly recommend reading the book that the movie is based on called Black Mass, Whitey Bulger, The FBI, and A Devil's Deal by Dick Lear and Gerard O'Neill. But don't stop there. I'd also recommend checking out Kevin Weeks' interview with the Daily Beast to get a sense for the other side of the story. You can find a link to the book, the interview, and so many more resources to start your own deep dive into the life of Whitey Bulger in the show notes. And you can find those show notes, all of the other podcast episodes, sign up for the show's newsletter to get some exclusive behind the scenes of the show, and more over at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Finally, it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one. Whitey Bulger tipped off the FBI on the boss of the Winter Hill Gang, the gang that he then took over after the arrest. Number two, Whitey Bulger had a son who died of Reyes Syndrome, but it wasn't after 1975 like the movie implies. Number three, everyone in the Winter Hill Gang followed Whitey Bulger because they were afraid of him. You know which one is a lie? Number one and number two are true. That means number three is a lie. In an interview with Whitey's enforcer, Kevin Weeks, he revealed that many of the characters in the movie weren't depicted as they were in real life. In particular, Johnny, the Basin Street Butcher, Martirano, and Stevie, the Rifleman, Flemmy. According to Kevin, both Johnny and Stevie were violent killers who would have turned on Whitey without a second thought if he had berated them the way Johnny Depp's version of Whitey Bulger did in the film. Now I know throughout this episode, we've relied a lot on the information from Kevin Weeks. How can we rely on the guy who took over as boss of the Winter Hill Gang after Whitey Bulger left? Well, simply put, how can we not? We simply don't have any other information. And as Johnny Depp's version of Whitey said in the movie, if no one was around, it didn't happen. Since so many of the events in the movie took place without anyone around but the guys who did it, who should we believe? It's not like Whitey Bulger is divulging information. He refused to talk to the filmmakers for the movie. And after all, 
it was Kevin Weeks' testimony that helped take down Whitey. So the FBI believed him. Do you? What did you think of Black Mass and the world of organized crime? I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash based on a true story podcast, on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B, or if you want to avoid social media, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. Thanks again for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>